arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Stories of the road not taken, and worlds within worlds where justice is served to those who step beyond the edge of time, space, and reality, good and evil, and life and death. Here's a question from our first story tonight. Steve steals a remote from Dr. Milkowski. How altruistic will he become once he knows he can go back and forth in time? Daycare. Clarice sends her father, Morris, to an adult daycare facility a facility with unbounded possibilities. When she removes Morris, the cycle is completed in an unusual and rejuvenating way. The decision. Avak's goal is to become a Proltor, in charge of others and a ship, but he must make a final judgment that will either give him what he wants or cause his own death. What would you do if you had a remote that could bring you anywhere ahead in time or back in time? I agree with Lord Acton's quote. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Although different individuals may vary their absolute power, the result is the same every time. Our second story involves a unique adult daycare facility and a man who had given up, but now looks forward to taking the bus to daycare. The last selection is a tale of judgment that will determine an alien leader's life or death. Episode two, Compilation by Robert P. Fitton begins now. Fast Forward by Robert P. Fitton The Grand Hall, set under a three-kilometer-wide dome, dwarfed anything in the galaxy. The exalted galactic ruler, leader of half of the galaxy's human beings, gazed over the adulterating throng, as his guards lifted his golden throne onto the hand-carved orca wood pedestal. He reached for his remo and slowly lowered his thumb onto the well-worn button. All motion within the room ceased, and he stood, raising his arms to the stars. Fools! They will think I have vanished! He sprang from the throne onto the stage and peered at his reflection in the template mirrors. His graying hair reminded him that fifteen years had passed since he had left the college. He merged his rotund body through the template mirror and into the banquet hall, but stopped to view the food spread over the room-length table and the motionless crowd in the room. Frozen steam molecules were suspended over the food that generated no heat. He stood at the table center and removed the remol and debated whether to join the festivities. Bored. He released everything as if he were simply taking a movie off pause. The room flew into motion. Enough! They dropped in praise when they saw him appear. His guards, clad in red and gold satin, hurried to his side. The feast has been prepared for my leader. And the woman? The guard clapped his hands and several women, clad in colorful sheer garments, danced into the room. The exalted leader smashed his fists on the table. Like the excess food, these women were not enough to satisfy him. He prepared to reach for the remol. Why must we be bored? The guard fell to his knees. I am sorry, my leader. And why were there empty sections in the hall this evening? My leader, some colony people have taken to the streets, angry that you have withheld their spring food and clothing allowances. Many of them do not bother me with triviality. Get rid of them. Yes, my leader. Enough. I grow bored with this. 
He removed the remol and stopped everything again. Setting the remol in reverse would bring him through time and back to the college. He pushed his thumb onto the white or blue button, and the acceleration commenced. People buzzing about the room quickly blurred as he walked back into the grand hall. His entire day soon stretched like colored paint dripping onto a white spinning wheel, eventually dimming and darkening as the remol's red digits reversed and zoomed back to zero. He stopped, paused, and took a position in the corridor outside his old sixth-floor office at Craigdon Hall. He saw himself as a younger man, hair deep brown and body slim behind his desk. Steve Wilson speaking. Yes, Dean Astor. No, no intrusion at all. You've made a decision? About the new department chairman, yes. What? Dr. Milkowski. Well, I, uh, I wish him the best. Steve hung up and threw down the phone. He sprang from the chair and kicked it. The exalted ruler nodded. You had every right to be upset, Steve. Steve banged the oak filing cabinet. He's an old man, pompous, an egotistical old man. All my work, gone because of Milkowski. The exalted ruler shook his head and pushed the remol and moved ahead several years to a faculty party at Dean Astor's home. Steve's appearance had not changed, and he walked, drink in hand, toward the silver-haired Milkowski and several of his colleagues. Ah, Professor Wilson, how nice of you to join our little group. By the way, does everyone know Steve Wilson was the youngest graduate student at Stanford? He, Steve, stood rigid. I'm not here to recap my career, Dr. Milkowski, nor to play showman to the faculty. Milkowski gazed down briefly and smiled at his friends. If you will please excuse us. He led Steve into the hallway. Steve, if you will forgive me, I believe you've consumed a little too much. Liquor doesn't affect me, Walter. Something has your dander up tonight. What is it? Steve set the drink on the hall table and pointed at Milkowski. You never deserved the department chairmanship, and you know it. Oh, so that's it. The usual. I should have guessed. Envy does not become you, Steve. Now, if you will pardon me. I want the chairmanship, Walter. You've had it long enough. You certainly are in a position to retire if you wanted to. Milkowski started back into the front room. I'll work in a diminished capacity. Milkowski turned. And you think you're the one to take my place, do you? I won't discuss it any further. Steve followed him into the main room. I work hard. I worked hard long before you came on the scene, and I've worked hard since. All those years playing second fiddle to the great Walter Milkowski. You are drunk. And you have a limited understanding of things. I enjoy people, Steve. That's why you are envious of me and my position. Envious of you driving around a run-down Volkswagen and living in an apartment over the stationer's store? That is enough. It's the power you crave. The guest stared at Steve as he followed Milkowski out of the hall. That's it. It's the power. Milkowski wrapped his red scarf around his neck and donned his leather coat over his shoulders. You have no conception of what power truly is. Milkowski returned to the front room, bade farewell to Dean Astor, and diverted from Steve as he left. Steve ran to the sidelight and watched him negotiate the slippery front walk. He hurried to the closet and rummaged through the hangers for his own coat. As he fumbled with his coat, the dean shook his hand and wasted precious time blabbing about an upcoming faculty meeting. When Steve finally entered the cold air, Milkowski had backed his little red Volkswagen down the drive. He shifted and the smoky exhaust trailed down the snow-covered street. Killing Milkowski would be easy. Steve stepped through the chilly February air and thought about his plan. He would kill Milkowski by loosening the wood balustrade on the professor's third-floor balcony. And once he had the doctor on the porch, he would send Milkowski careening into the parking lot below. He laughed at the cleverness of his plan as he trudged down the snow-dusted Main Street sidewalk. A few minutes later, he passed Milkowski's car under the rear lot's street lamp, and he gazed up at the thin layer of snow on the third-floor balcony. Like a burglar, he moved swiftly up the aging wood staircase. At the kitchen door, he looked inside. 
Melkowski was settled in his recliner and picked up the TV's remote control, but abruptly set it back on the table. He checked his empty tobacco pouch, stood, and then grasped the remote in both hands. As Steve rubbed the fog off the window glass, Melkowski pushed the remote and vanished. Stunned, Steve checked again, not believing he had seen Milkoski disappear. He kicked the back door and ran into the living room. A room search confirmed that the doctor was gone. The front door chain lay securely in place. Steve stood in the center of the room as the glass clock on the mahogany piece slowly clicked out the seconds. You! He turned. Milkoski stood in front of the chair, the remote control still in his hand. Tiny colored lights blinked and red digits were displayed on an upper screen. You disappeared. I did? Are you telling me you can move from place to place at will? Milkowski held the device securely in his hand and grinned. Why, of course. I went down to Higgins Tobacco Shop on Main Street, procured my tobacco, put in the appropriate currency in the register, and no one is the wiser. Except you, Steve. How is this possible? I am from your future. A once gifted child obsessed with time. He held the device in the air. This is absolute power. I lived on the Alfred colony. As a youth, I watched discs of the ancestral planet. It took years to perfect this. I can move forward or backward in time. I can stop time. Time to be rejuvenated. Rejuvenated? A complete genetic overhaul. Incredible. Steve deemed getting the device more important than killing Malkowski. You are a very clever man, but why waste your time here? I am a contented man. Hold my robe, Steve. The power will flow between us. I will not need to make any adjustment. Steve looked into Milkowski's eyes and slowly gripped his blue smoking jacket. Nothing changed. He watched the glass clock when Milkowski pushed the lower right button. The clock pendulum stopped in mid-stroke, and he turned to the doctor. What happened? We have paused the world around us. Milkowski led him into the kitchen and toward the broken door, but no cold air filtered inside. The snow on the railing outside had no temperature as they descended the staircase. The flakes were rigid in the dark air. On Main Street, a car locked in time shone its headlights across the lonely street. This can't be real, said Steve. As real as anything else. Don't you realize what you could do with this? They moved on to the snowbank sidewalk. Milkowski stopped. I have seen the pain of the human condition. I earnestly try to change things, but I do not have the wisdom to alleviate pain. We can share the device. Milkowski laughed and shook his head. <laughs> you and me? You would use the control for personal gain. I know you all too well, Steve. What are you going to do with me? I haven't decided yet. They continued up the sidewalk, past a young couple stuck in mid-stride. Their eyes were like glass crystals in a showcase, and their faces contorted in the midst of conversation. Even the dark hands of the glowing white clock face never moved past 11 minutes past 11 o'clock. I am going to release the stop time. Steve nodded. The couple, now behind them, walked hand in hand down the main street sidewalk and were engaged in a light conversation, and the car... Gridlocked in time a few seconds before, kicked up the slush along the asphalt. The cold bit his hands and ears. Now what? We are going to take a little trip. Now hold on. Mokoski pushed the button above and the clock tower hands spun madly. As night flipped to day, flickering so only a dim twilight covered the town. The buildings remained firm. Trees disappeared. Others grew in seconds and then disintegrated. New buildings appeared, some vanished. The stationer's building will come down in 2116. Historic groups will try to save it. Keep your eye on it as we pass, Steve. Like a blip on the radar screen, the three-story building popped out of existence, replaced by a highly reflective green cylinder. New geometric shapes of varying colors formed across the street. 
Other buildings vanished, even the police station, but the clock tower remained. A bright flash momentarily blinded Steve. When he opened his eyes, none of the buildings stood. A warming breeze brushed his face as they crossed into a small field surrounded by a dense forest. Between the trees and the shadows, the clock tower survived. What happened? Welcome to 3110 A.D. You will find it very habitable here, Steve. In fact, you may become quite happy. Now, trust me with your secret, Walter. Dean Astor told me the same thing. Astor? No, he just left his party. No, five years after the party, Astor retired. He, like you, found out my secret. Other people you don't know, but whom you will know, are here also. Milkowski's private graveyard. You have no right to control people like this. And you have no right to threaten me. Steve grit his teeth and surveyed the fauna. He had no intention of staying here and clutched Milkowski's smoking jacket. It was imperative that he overpower the doctor. He continued asking questions about the future, tapping Milkowski's ego and letting him pontificate about his abilities and prowess in constructing the device. Dr. Milkowski! Dr. Milkowski! Dean Astor, clad in a bright orange jumpsuit, ran with a few other people toward the field. Milkowski's thumb moved toward the fast-forward button, but Steve yanked it, backhanded Milkowski's face, and thrust his knee into the doctor's stomach. He lunged for the control, wrestled it easy from Milkowski's hands, and pushed the pause button. Milkowski, his mouth half-open in mid-sentence, assumed a figurine appearance in the bright sunlight. Astor and the others were frozen on the clearing's edge. Steve laughed and grasped the remote control tightly as he backed away. Once he distanced himself, he released the time stop. Milkowski called from across the clearing. A race against time, Steve, and you won! Take a good look around you, Walter. Get used to 3110 A.D. You, sir, are a victim of your own design. Steve pushed the fast-forward button and sped away through time. The exalted galactic ruler again prepared to address his people. Killing the 5,000 had provided a splendid example of obedience, and the packed hall awaited his return. He faced his guards. I will go among them this evening. Let them touch their leader. He held a remole inside his garment and walked into the hall. A collective cheer rose from the gathering as he slowly raised his arms toward the sky dome. Encircled by his guards, he ambled across the platform and down the steps. A million hands and enlivened figures reached for him. They called his name and he nodded as he passed. They loved him as well as they should. As their provider, his leadership had allowed them sustenance of life. He shuffled forward, his elbows sideswiping the guards ahead as they stopped. Move, I say! The guards and the surrounding mass froze. He immediately reached for the remole and pushed the buttons, but nothing happened. What is this? It is justice. He turned but saw no one. Who said that? You don't look well, Steve. A bit heavy and oh, so old. Where are you? Does it matter? He moved around the guards and checked the crowd as he rushed back to the platform. Shielding his eyes, he gazed across their solid faces. Where are you? Youthful and exuberant, Milkowski, wearing a beige corduroy jacket and light chinos, emerged from behind the guards. He held another remole in his hands. You really should have taken better care of yourself, Steve. How did you get here? Actually... I just left the auditorium where I taught your class on subatomic particles. They miss your description of quarks and gluons. Steve pushed the buttons on his own remole. What have you done to my control? Your control? Is that all you have to say for yourself? The man who complained that I should help the human condition? Now I stand before the altruistic leader of the galaxy. How generous, Steve. How generous. Steve started forward but stopped near the stairs. He looked down at Milkowski. Man does not care about generosity. Oh, shut up, Steve. I could have you killed. 
I don't think so. You will experience your own magnificence firsthand, said Milkowski. I don't understand. You will. I have to go now. I have my own classes to teach. With a subtle smile, Milkowski raised his brows and pushed a button on his own remole and disappeared. Steve lunged down the stairs, slipping, but quickly stood. Milkowski! He wove around the immobilized guards and hurried down the main aisle and frantically pushed the remote buttons. Cursing the doctor, he searched the hall aisle by aisle and finally stumbled back on stage. For the longest time, he sat on the stairs and sobbed into his open hands. He mumbled ineffectually as the emotion churned. Weakened, he stood and faced his unmoving subjects. Again, he tried the remote, but when it did not function, he hurled it high into the darkness. I will let you people share my power. I will humble myself, walk among you. Give me the chance. I will prove it. I've learned I was wrong to hold so much power. Wiping the eyes, he wandered down the stairs and retrieved the remote. He punched the buttons as he ascended to his gold throne. With the remote set in the chair arm, the exalted galactic ruler buried his head in his hands. Like opening a door into a sports stadium, wild cheering instantly shook the hall. He raised his head. The guards moved and held back his subjects. A gradual smile filled his place. He stood and raised his hands to the sky dome. The room quieted as they awaited his words. I... I am the exalted ruler. Worship me. Worship me. Daycare by Robert P. Fitton. These hands threw touchdown passes at Brown. I'm just an old man. My name is Morris B. Draper, and I'm a human being. Morris held the side of the armchair, and Clarice helped him stand. Now I'm being herded out to pasture. My brain might be a little old, so what? You're looking at the face of a lover, Clarice, a man who is a top business manager, the son of Albert and Mary Draper. Morris B. Draper, anachronism. Dad, you're 81 years old. Oh, I'm 81 years old, all right. Passed out of the 70s, that's one strike. Lose your wife, that's two strikes. Have a bladder problem and it's time to hit the showers. Burden alert, burden alert. Look, Clarice, I don't want to go to the nursing home. What I really want to do is go to the bathroom. You're not well? She asked, moving the chrome walker over toward him. I'd like to say I'm well. That is, if you like playing cat and mouse with constipation and diarrhea. Shall I call Dr. Levine? Huh, another prescription, another pill. I need a program guide just for my medication times. Or maybe I just need a laxative. They say that calcium is good for old bones. Clarice opened the bathroom door. Oh, Bones, you're as old as you feel, Dad. Then I must be 750. What about daycare? They have places you can go for the day and then return here at night. Clarice, daycare is for babies. The senior bus whined toward the ocean flats where Morris had once played as a child. The marsh grasses and reeds looked the same, but someone had built a white pyramid tapered against the blue sky. When the hell did they put up that building? My sister Evelyn and I used to play with the neighborhood kids out here. The blue-haired lady next to him giggled. When was that? Last spring, Morris? Evelyn died three years ago. Oh, well, my daughter brings me up here all the time, but I never seen that building. The bus hummed past more marshes and wetlands. A rabbit scampered across the road, disappearing into the tall grass to the right. Morris knew that Clarice was only trying to help him, but he had his doubts about being babysat all day. In eight hours, he'd be home. A few minutes later, the bus driver signaled, and they veered left, up a narrow, faded asphalt lane. Below the towering pyramid, 
The bus squeezed under a long white canopy and abruptly stopped. Why doesn't he just use air brakes? Oh, Mar, it's just so witty, said Mrs. Faxton. Yeah, I'm witty with whiplash. The man in a green baseball cap and jumpsuit strutted through the tinted bronze sliding doors. His white hair matched the building facade. Who the hell is that? I think it's Esperance, said Mrs. Cranston behind him. You know the gentleman that runs daycare? Yeah, well, he looks like an astronaut. You know, when they come back from space? Esperance rapped on the side window and Morris struggled to turn. He spoke with an accent. Your trip to daycare is long overdue, Mr. Draper. That beats the bedpan in the nursing home. Esperance smiled perfectly. You will not need a bedpan where you are going. Tension and anxiety are things of the past now that you are with us at daycare. Morris leaned to Mrs. Faxon. Sounds like they're going to shoot us at sunrise and put us out of our misery. By noon, we'll be at the glue factory. Morris rolled his eyes when they wheeled him into a complex examining room. All the blinking computers and readout screens and monitors confused him. Esperance stood between a team of medical people in blue operating garb and a row of green vinyl tables. Is everyone ready? Now what the hell you doing? asked Morris. What, what is all this? Esperance turned. I'm going to transform your lives. Oh boy, he's going to get me a man, said Mrs. Cranston. You know, I get enough of this at Dr. Levine's office, and then he sends me to the clinic, said Morris. My technicians will help you at each station. Mrs. Faxon held her wrist and blinked her spacey blue eyes. Oh, Morris, if they're just running tests, they'll probably spot any potential problems. Yeah, out of sight, out of mind. One of the men in the blue surgical suits put his arm under Morris's shoulder. Let me help you on the table, Mr. Draper. Morris said nothing, but his eyes followed the monitor scans and the computer lights along the wall. Getting up on the table was a chore, but a sudden peacefulness migrated through his tired body when he laid back on the soft vinyl. He stared at a wide screen on the ceiling, and a proliferating warmth massaged his weary bones. Then he looked at Mrs. Faxon, also horizontal on the adjacent table. This is unbelievable! Very good, said the technician who had helped him up. Across a wide screen, a red outlined image of his body became visible with green and blue detailed depictions of every organ in his body. Each body organ was listed on a side menu and designated with bits of information. Hey, I can see my blood moving through my veins, although I never knew I was a blue blood. That's just a computer's enhancement, said the technician. Esperance's voice came over the speakers within the screen. I want you all to know there are certain things that occur here at daycare, things that must remain hidden to the outside world. The sensation you will feel shortly will be a simple thought suppression wave. Morris rolled his head toward Mrs. Cranston. So much for my life as a Casanova. What was that, Morris? Oh, nothing. You can't suppress what's already been suppressed. As he spoke, a numbness swept over him. It was as if he had hyperventilated again and tried to stand. For a moment, he thought he might black out, but the feeling actually was enjoyable. Well, isn't this nifty? Esperance's image now hovered on the screen above him. There, that wasn't difficult, was it? Now, with the procedure completed and all your genetic material mapped, as they say, you ain't seen nothing yet. Morris looked into the technician's brown eyes. The last time I heard that, Dr. Levine's nurse prepared me for an enema. The technician smiled and helped Morris sit up. He required Morris to stay on the table for at least a minute, then lifted him into the wheelchair. Now where are we going? Esperance stood before the group again. I believe Mr. Draper has asked what's next. We are bringing you wherever you want to go. The choice is yours. Clarice stood on the front porch when Morris moved out of the van without assistance. The pain in his legs and back had vanished on the vinyl table, but he still did not have the complete mobility of his younger years. As he and Clarice converged, he had difficulty remembering anything after he was wheeled off the table. Dad, where's your walker? Walker, walker, who needs a walker? 
Clarice's green eyes opened wide and she studied him standing on the cement. Dr. Levine said, forget Levine, I feel fine. I haven't seen you move like that since mom. Well, I'm no marathon runner, but I feel good. Clarice took his arm, waved at the daycare bus driver, and they started up the porch. Morris quickly climbed the steps. I guess your first day was good. Good? I feel great. I never felt better. What did you do? She opened the aluminum storm door, and Morris strutted by her and into the foyer. I'll never tell. She spoke from behind as he moved into the kitchen. Nothing funny happened down there, did it, Dad? Oh, what do you mean, hanky-panky? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean, said Clarice. At my age? Come on, Clarice. The only thing that comes up in my body is the last meal I ate. Did they give you a drug or... No, of course not. I just had a good time. Maybe it's the answer to old age, Clarice. Instead of sitting around and talking about everything you did in your life, maybe you should just keep living it. There's too many people, myself included, who are fond of talking about the past, like some record over and over. I say live it. Clarice took his medication bottles from the windowsill. As she moved toward the refrigerator, Morris tried to sift the preceding few hours through his mind, but he could remember nothing except feeling very good. She poured the orange juice into a small flowered breakfast glass and handed it to him. Are you sure you're all right? I never felt better. Morris lay in bed and looked over his bifocals as Clarice poked her head in the doorway. Dad, it's 11.30. When's the last time you stayed up this late? Hell, I don't know. She crossed the room in her gray bathrobe and stared at the book. What are you reading? I'm reading The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William S. Shira. I thought I'd like to reread it. That book is over a thousand pages. Actually, it's over 1,200. I suppose I should get some rest before the bus picks me up at 7. Clarice nodded and sat on the edge of the bed. I think that would be the prudent course. <laughs> I'm so happy you signed me up at daycare. Can't believe the change. I'm just baffled. Morris grasped her hand on the blanket. Remember, Clarice, never question serendipity. You might lose it. At first, Clarice had reservations about taking time off from work. Seeing her father move on the daycare bus without assistance further confirmed his odd behavior. Dr. Levine had lightly recommended an operation. She trusted his judgment, but now wondered if an operation was necessary at all. She decided to see the daycare facility and, with trepidation, drove her compact down to the flats near the ocean. The huge white triangular building stuck out of the marsh reeds and the salt air seeped into her car. She pulled into an empty gravel lot and shut off the car. With her pocketbook in hand, she shuffled under a long canopy toward the bronze frame doors at the building's base. The doors opened automatically and she walked through a granite tiled foyer. Other doors opened inside and she gazed up ten floors from the lobby. Hello! A man with a green baseball cap and matching one-piece suit moved swiftly down a glossy brown tile corridor. Miss Draper? How do you know who I am? You bear a striking resemblance to your father. I am Mr. Esperance. Nice to meet you. Morris is such a nice man and enjoying his time here at daycare. Yes, he is, said Clarice, and you want to know why. Yes, my father comes bounding off your bus, doesn't use his walker, he's energized, he's reading long books near midnight, I don't understand. Esperance nodded and tightened his smooth lips. It is the policy of daycare to have the family approval, as well as physician recommendation. Of course, if you disapprove of what we're doing here, you will have to complete our checkout procedure. Whatever. Come with me, please. He moved with her down a corridor with luminescent white walls. A fuzzy blue-green area peered some distance away. You see, I do not believe that people should just grow old. Growing old is an attitude, Miss Draper. Like being inside on an inclement day. You can still enjoy yourself. Maybe. 
she said. I am not one to argue against the body's degeneration, but the mind is limitless. The wonder of our mind's attainment is an unestimated quality. They reached an encroaching aqualite with white squares extending like storage lockers in a spacious corridor ahead. What is that? That is the mind's attainment. I don't understand, said Clarice. She moved closer to the first white tube square and leaned forward. A three-dimensional image moved briskly through tinted glass. What do you do, have some kind of audio-visual thing here? Esperance, his hand balanced on both knees, watched the image intently. Oh no, this is the real thing. Excuse me? Esperance looked up and raised his white brows. I am quite particular about satisfying client needs, within the bounds of propriety and good taste, of course. I take them where they want to go. Your father is down here. Who knows about this? Esperance stopped and faced her. I think you know the answer to that, Miss Draper. He motioned to his left. This is your father's area. Clarice tensed and furrowed her brow. When she leaned toward the glass, she saw her father as a younger man. A crowd surrounded the green football turf, and a nimble young man cocked his arm. The football sailed into the hands of another player who was quickly tackled. My God! Morris was a good quarterback. This is ludicrous, she said, placing her fingertips on the glass. Her father removed his chin strap and ran to the sidelines to talk to his coach. Where is he? I mean now. What you see is what you get. But he's an old man. Not when he's in there. He can be whatever he wants to be. Go wherever he wants. It is his choice. Clarice turned and leaned against the warm, tinted glass. She closed her eyes and brought her hands to her mouth. No, this is not normal. He might get hurt. She turned and saw her father back at the line, calling out a cadence of signals. Morris is fine. Clarice watched as her father leaped over the line and into the end zone, scoring a touchdown. I want him back. Miss Draper, think of what you might be denying him. No, this is too dangerous. I won't put my father at risk. Put an end to this, Mr. Esperance. Esperance exhaled through his nose and pursed his lips. His eyes moistened as he nodded. Whatever you say, Miss Draper. Getting a call from the hospital was a common occurrence over the past two years. Clory stood clustered within an elevator full of visitors, gabbing nurses, and a solitary white-haired doctor. Her father had suffered too much. Death would not be feared, but welcomed. The door slid open, and she cantered down the green-polished tiles. A nurse left her father's end room and crossed to the nurse's station. Clarice always feared what she would see when she rounded the corner. With each footstep, she wondered whether she had done the right thing. The nursing home's restrictions had hampered her father's outlook. Maybe she should have let him participate in daycare. It was odd, she thought, as she approached the varnished door, how daycare was clouded in her mind. She hated mental blocks, but she had disjointed memories of the place. She paused at the entrance and inhaled the tainted hospital air. The nurse at the plastic intravenous bag turned with a sorrowful smile. I'm glad you're here, Clarice. Is he dead? No. Morris Draper's rounded stomach moved quickly with each chance for air as he sucked in short, gurgling breaths. His glassy blue eyes were half-sealed at the lids as he stared aimlessly to the smooth ceiling. For 83 years, Morris Draper's heart had contracted and pushed vital blood through his veins. The strain on his heart must have been extraordinary right now. My father has lived a long life. She reached across the sheets and held his smooth hand. The warmth would soon leave his body. I think he wanted to... I think he wanted to relive a lot of things, things he might have missed. She studied his chest as the breaths became staggered. His face remained fixed and locked out of the ongoing struggle within his body. Such a fine line now existed between her father's life and his death. Nurses popped in and out of the room during the next few hours. One of the doctors came in and took his pulse. This could go on for some time, said one of the nurses. I need a break, maybe a cup of coffee. Please call me if... I will. 
Clarice rubbed her eyes as she entered the corridor. She passed the nurse's station and moved toward the elevator and debated whether to spend the night. The green doors rumbled open and the white-haired doctor she had seen earlier smiled and passed her in the corridor. She turned as he walked along. The doors closed. She had seen him before. What the hell's going on here? asked Morris Draper, standing next to his dying body in the darkened hospital room. I must be dead. I must be dead. Esperance's fluffy white hair blazed bright as he moved around the doorway. Good evening, Mr. Draper. You. Me. You know, I told Clarice I should have continued with daycare. She didn't understand, and frankly, I don't know what the hell happened. You blocked the memories of the place. What are you doing here? And who are you, really? Who I am is not important. He shook Morris's hand. Am I dead? You are. I think I'm going to have a heart attack. Mr. Draper, you're dead. You can't have a heart attack. Morris moved over to his motionless form in the bed. Why do we have to suffer so much when we get old? The transition is paramount. What? He stared at his own marble eyes and twisted strands of white hair against the pillowcase. It's like anything else, perspective. Suffering brings out what is to come into the proper perspective, whether you're dying young or on a rough journey at the end. Whatever you say, he looked back at Esperance. Clarice will be sad. I don't want her to be sad. I assure you the perspective of sadness directs the mind where it needs to go. Morris nodded and stepped back from his body. Where am I going? I mean, which way, up or down? Esperance smiled. Neither in the traditional sense. Spirit exists in a roller coaster of possibilities. Death of the physical body is just one of those possibilities. He extended his hand. Come on, let's get out of here. Morris looked at himself again. Au revoir, Morris. Wasn't all that bad. They moved across the fluorescent lit room. His troubles did not seem to matter anymore. Esperance walked with him into a blaze of pure white light beyond the doorway. Morris had the odd sensation of having his body spread like surface fog across a clear lake at sunrise. He comprehended more than he thought as his consciousness thinned and swirled. Darkness, mixed with security and nourishment, and a new hope, were squeezed and jolted through a warm fluid. Air surged into his lungs, and his eyes snapped open to a world of bright spheres and linear shapes. Pain mixed with the joy of a new perspective. Albert leaned against the deacon's bench at the end of the hall. He opened his eyes as Evelyn ran from the second-floor bedroom. Father! Father! Albert stood and straightened his vest and worried about his wife. Evelyn! It's a boy! It's a boy! Dr. Samuelson smiled as he popped his head out the bedroom door. Will you come down here, Albert? Your wife wants you to see your son. Albert took Evelyn's hands and they raced forward. Mary was propped up on the oak bed's rounded pillows as the midwife wiped the baby's head clean with a white cloth. Mary's eyes hung heavy. Albert, are you all right, Mary? I'm fine, and so is your new son. Albert studied his pudgy face and touched his fingertips to the seamless skin. He smiled slowly and fought the tears. Hello, Morris. Welcome to this world. The Decision by Robert P. Fitton Avak feared Engine 3 was the planet harboring the resurgent biogenic Kafak plague. Millions of Prolians and Egrins were at risk if the rumors were true. Even if the resurgence had left the planet, a single infected resurgent could unleash disaster. He walked from the cabin within the wingspan of the Pulver Crest. None of the old Circa offices of the Mariot concurred with his promotion to Proltor, nor did they administer the worthiness test. He must prove himself outside the test even more than he had in battle. Delon 35 looked up from the technical panels. Good morning, Proltor. I trust you rested well. Being called Proltor was all he ever wanted. 
I did. Now we have to prevent resurgent vengeance. Status of Egrin III. Is the resurgent or the evidence of the Kaufak plague anywhere down here? He gazed outward over the planet's glaze-covered surface. We have seen no evidence of the Kaufak, only the attacks. The peace will end. Evak looked into his black iPads. No, 35, there will be no more attacks. Braska Security flashed Egrin III status in less than a dirat ago. Ornak's detail is guarding the scanning station. Good. Once this outer boundary is established, we will keep the resurgence out of the system. But if they spread the Kaufak, the flash system sounded. Down on 35, lifted the sifter to his tiny red ear. He nodded several times. Acknowledged. What's the matter? Outside, Braska's indicated an approaching storm and the Durza has not returned. Others may be dead, possibly from the resurgence. Evak tightened his dark, gritted head as Delnon 35 listened to the sifter again. Flash Ornek, we need to rejoin the group. Proltor, Braska's do report a Prolian death. Durza. How did it happen? How was he killed? His intake cavity was slashed. You know what that means. The resurgent death blade, its surface can rip like a cluster of rough blades. While Avak trusted the Prolian with technical prowess, action or resurgent raw strength frightened him. He stepped back from 35 and leaned against the cold portal window. Prepare outside protection. Are we going to the settlement, Proltor? Yes. Notify the Marriott. His thoughts were consumed by the rigid blue-skinned resurgent rigors in full battle set. His greatest fear was the biogenic disease spreading onto the planet and to the Marriott. Shall I order a full elimination? Yes, we'll go ourselves. I won't risk everyone. Even with the pad shield, the star's blue light glared off the snow cover in the frosted dome settlement. Avak trudged across the ice pack as the dusty frozen snow swirled in gusts. Ornak opened the connecting pipe corridor and Avak followed 35 inside. He flipped his shield. Proltor, Durza's upper cavity was cut into a jagged, dried fluid sash. We submit it was the death blade. I understood the resurgence were driven from this system. Ornak held his pad frames. No, nothing else, Proltor. The resurgent Deathblade. Avak walked through the translucent green corridor back to the main settlement. My only concern is the three million Egrin allies in the warmer part of this planet. A single resurgent could spread the Kaufak. Ornak stepped forward. That is the Braska concern, Proltar. The Marriott would end negotiations if the Kaufak spreads. The peace would end. You, as Proltor, have a duty to attend this. It is said you were too young to be a Proltor, and the worthiness test was waived. Abak nodded and gazed around the icy frame dome. Clear the settlement. Proltor? I said, clear out this place. 35, stay with me. Yes, Proltor. Ornark held his ranger. Proltor, you have made the right decision. What will the Marriott Circus think of me as Proltor if I don't prove myself? Exactly. You have your orders, Ornak. Begin clearing the Broskas from the settlement. Avak glanced at Delnon 35 as he crossed the dark, hardened floor to the center forest cluster. He looked through the thick green leaves and stroked his lower intake lip. If the Surkas were not sitting in judgment, would he take on the resurgence himself? Risking death was preferable to a faulty judgment. He watched as the gold-suited Broskas emptied out of the settlement and filed into the connecting corridor. Delnon 35 said nothing, but his dark pads were in flux as he checked his encompass screen. Now Avak had put him in risk to satisfy his own ambitions. What do you see, 35? A few stragglers moving down the conductor tubes, but no sign of the resurgence, Proltor. We will take it lock by lock, securing the sections and sealing them. Yes, Proltor. The remaining broskers appeared as perforated green lines on the encompass screen. Avak heard them emerge from the conductor tubes down the inner corridor. They passed the forest cluster and back to the connecting corridor. Ornek trailed out of the tubes and moved toward Avak and Delnon 35. Settlement is cleared. I must file a protest. 
I insist, said Abak. Yes, Proltor. He held out his spindly ranger. I wish you a true course. You have my thanks. Bring the Pover Crest to a low-level swing of the planet. We'll flash if we're in trouble. Ornak looked at Delmon 35 and headed past the forest cluster. The outside connector locks were clamped in place. Delmon 35 moved with Avac through the quietude of the circular rim corridor. Both Prolians held fusers outward as the heating systems pumped the vital warming air through the venting tubes. The quick abandonment of the outpost was evidenced by the full beaker of red crasium next to the still-activated digital monitor. He left the monitor activated, afraid the silence would further exacerbate his thoughts of the resurgent rigor. Images of the gray, serrated, pink-laced death blade protruding from the ranger's appendage fostered a lingering doubt in Avak's own abilities. Maybe they had made him Proltor too early. Fusers are sometimes ineffective on Rigor shields, said Delnon 35. Avak's eye pads tightened. He scanned the smooth surface ahead and gripped his fuser tightly. And sometimes fusers are very effective, 35. Delnon 35 nodded, but also kept his pads trained ahead as they entered a tinted, clear connector tube to the power units some distance away. Avak convinced himself that if he survived either the Death Blade or the Carfact, his command was respectively secured. He moved into the enclosure's shadow. Across the barren wasteland outside was an indented area where the Pover Crest had rested only a short time ago. With questions of the Carfact's possible spread over the planet, moving this vessel into orbit was the only answer. Proltor! cried Delnon-35. He moved toward the silver power generation Simblax. Avak focused his pads on six bodies scattered over the Simblax observation lip. Yellow and green body fluids had dripped like the great water cascade on Prolian. His limber appendage tickled his fuser trigger and he planted both feet firmly on the floor. Even from this vantage point, the death blade marks across the upper cavities and the lower extremities were vivid. Resurgent riggers are not content to use fusers. They must butcher their adversaries. Mutilator. I want the death blade sent back. Behind them, the Simblax doors quickly slid. Delnod 35 sprinted back, but the doors locked in place. He pulsed his red fuser against the metal, producing a bright glow. It's holding, Proltor. These are atmospheric locks, 35. Do not drain your fuser. Avak spun, fanning his fuser across the reflective Simblax tanks. From the darkness under the tanks, two luminescent aqua-circular pads moved forward. There! He aimed his fuser as the resurgent rigor emerged from the shadows as a hulking form with raised appendages as wide as a power linker tube. His huge head was matted with a greasy fur and oversized chomping cutters like a Sencor animal. I am not responsible for this death. Your own people killed the Egrins. You expect me to trust your words? He still did not see the death blade and he gripped his fuser. It is your decision. My fuser has lost charge, Proltor. The resurgent rigor stopped a short distance away. Your people have used you. You are only pieces in their game. Ornick is vying for his own power within the Prolian Marriott structure. He is a part of a rogue group who want to control the Marriott. They want you to kill me. The resurgents wish to maintain the peace. A peaceful coexistence. The peace? Your people have spread the Kofak, shouted Delnon 35. Fabrications. The Kofak is naturally occurring. It began on CBX-7. Resurgents have infected our people as a weapon of war, said Avak. I am infected. The rogue group infected me. They want an incident to continue the war. If you hit me with your fuser, you will spread the Kofak over this planet. Proof of the resurgent treachery. Stir up your people into hating us and balding them into power over your leaders. We are alone here in a far outpost. But do what you will do, Proltor. Determine the future of your Marriott. You riggers have stirred our people with the use of your death blade. Your words are the words of a liar who wants to live. Do you see my death blade, Prolian? 
I have the fuser. You are young to be a Proltor. Have you not the capacity to evaluate the truth? Must you be guided by the impetuousness of youth? Abak kept the fuser aimed as he spoke. Call the Pulver Crest 35. They will not respond, said the rigor. They want you to die, Proltor. Delnon 35 held his flash end tour. No answer, Proltor. This is a resurgent trick. Your fuser separates us from informing the Maria of the rogues. Kill him. Oh, yes, kill him, said the Rigor moving forward. Kill, and you will die yourself. Put Arak and his Prolians into power, you fool. Delnon stepped aside. If he dies, you will justify your position within the Marriott. Avak's appendage vibrated, and he was not sure who to believe. The Rigor was only a few feet away now. Abandon your fuser and let us travel together and advocate the peace to our leaders. The war perpetuates Proltor. Millions die for nothing. The Rigor's towering figure cast a shadow toward Avak, and he held out his ranger. The fuser, Proltor, show your intentions. Show your ability to gasp the truth. Fire now, Proltor! Abarak hurled his fuser across the smooth floor and spun it toward the Simplex tanks. The rigger's pads darkened and he exposed his rough skin, covering his chomping cutters. In a single motion, his convoluted pinkish-blue death blade swept through the air and ripped through Delnon 35's head. Through the spray of body liquids, Delnon 35 fell to the floor. Abak tightened his ranges and stepped back. Liar! What will you do now, Proltor? He extended his death blade in the low light. The fuser was too far away now. Delnon 35 lay dead to his right. Abak backed toward the transparency as the rigor moved with his death blade thrust forward. Abak reached the edge and the rigor retracted his death blade. I see you are a Prolian who values peace. You killed my friend. Your friend betrayed you and was prepared to die to end the peace. Then you are infected. Yes, I will eventually die. But you will report that you have killed me. In reality, we will reach the circus. We will expose the plot and the peace will be maintained. I didn't know which choice to make. Choices are the only true indicators of who we are, Proltor. And sometimes the choices are not clear. We need to be deemed worthy. Choose the peace. Flash your vessel now. Abak nodded. Ornak, this is the Proltor. The rigor is dead. Bring the Pulver Crest back. Yes, Proltor. Abak tucked his flash entor within his belt and turned in the transparency light. His pads were focused on the extended death blade sweeping toward his upper cavity. Consciousness sputtered as he fell and heard the circus leaders as they filed into the room. The decision is not worthy of a Proltar. Kill him. Bring in the next one to be tested. I like Fast Forward because the story has a simple premise about power. The story, if rewritten, would also corrupt absolutely. For the next episode, I want you to imagine the possibilities of a never-ending mall, artificial intelligence that can control the mind, and a particularly annoying but punchy story about a transfer of being from one person to another, whether they want to change or not. Next week, the titles are respectively The Monstrosity, Thinking of You, and In My Image. All three of these short stories were written in Southern California in the 1980s. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Be there or be square. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.